that word because in the New Testament, you and I as believers in Christ are called to that ministry of encouragement. And uh, several weeks ago, we walked through our first step of this study to determine what it means to encourage. The definition of the word means to put into a state of courage. Courage, as you know, is the main word inside of the word encouragement. To put into a state of courage. And I think all of us need that from time to time. Maybe especially as the times keep going on. We need to be put into a state of courage. And we're going to work through that definition, not just through the illustrations we've been looking at for the last uh, handful of weeks, but in a couple of weeks we're actually going to say, now as believers in Christ, what are we to be doing with that very ministry? Encouragement. So, I've been using Old Testament examples as uh, our illustrations of encouragement. We've seen men like Moses and Joshua and Daniel and King Darius and, and Jonathan and David. We've seen different aspects of encouragement. Sometimes it's just the transition from one leader to another leader and the role he has to encourage the next uh, one who will lead. At times it comes from unusual places. Especially we saw one week it was an ungodly pagan king who encouraged the people to do what they needed to do. Other times it was the righteous man who was called to encourage the unbeliever. And we've seen some uh, very unusual things. I think one of my favorites, though, was last week with Jonathan and his very unselfish encouragement of David, knowing that David was to be the next king. But that meant he also was replacing Jonathan's place as a king. And Jonathan, in his unselfish character, went to encourage David. I thought that was fascinating. Today I'm going to give you another illustration of encouragement. A very, very fascinating situation. And one that you will find very much parallels our present day. And uh, so I'm going to have you turn to Second Chronicles chapter 35. That's Old Testament. If you're in Corinthians and looking for chapter 35, you'll never find it. Alright? Second Chronicles is in the Old Testament. It's before the book of Psalms. If you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. Start backing up a little ways. You'll find First and Second Chronicles. They're very long, so they're not hard to locate. But make sure there's a two in front of your word, Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 35. Today I want to look at verse number 2. Verse number 2. I'm just going to read you the verse. It's right in the middle of a context, I know. And I will be sharing the context with you as we go. But this is the word we're looking at here. It says, He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in their service in the house of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so thankful for the work that you do in our lives on a constant basis. Even now you're at work. As believers in Christ, we're being shaped into the image of our Savior. 
And that's a task that goes on, I know, throughout our lives here on this earth, but eventually we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We long for that day. In the meantime, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And every time we open up your word, Lord, we know that there is another opportunity here for us to grow in our understanding of you, for our faith to be strengthened, for our perspective to be made clearer, for our determination to be made more solid, and our enthusiasm, our love for you, our desire to follow. May it be enhanced today, Lord, as we spend time in your word. When we see these Old Testament examples, remind us that they were there, not just as true stories, but as those that are meant to help us understand, to instruct us that we may walk more fully in your ways. So challenge us with your word today, Lord, as we look again into an Old Testament event. Show us what we need to know, that we may know what to do. We will give you the praise for this, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, very interesting case. Let me try to picture this for you. Um, And I know you've got your place right here in 2 Chronicles, Mark it with a bookmark of some kind. We're going to be right back. But I want you to go back to Second Kings. That's a couple of books before chapter number 21. Second Kings chapter number 21. The first name you're going to see is the name Manasseh. Manasseh was a king of Judah. Manasseh would reign for 50 Five years as king. That's the longest duration of any of the Old Testament kings. Fifty-five years he would reign upon the throne in Judah. He is perhaps one of the wickedest men to have ever sat on the throne of Judah. Fifty-five years is a long time to make a big mess when you have a wicked heart. That's King Manasseh. Not setting up for a very happy start now, am I? King Manasseh, his name is the first thing you read here. Let's read what it says a little bit about him here as we go. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. We need a 12-year-old. Is there any 12-year-olds here? Jack, how old are you? 11, not quite there. That's okay, we won't make you king right now. Okay, Jack, he's almost 12. We got 12-year-olds up there? We do, 12-year-olds. How would you like to be a king or a queen for you? Almost. Woo! Can you imagine? 12 years old. You get the impact of that thought all of a sudden? He was 12 years old when he became king. Now look at his testimony. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. That's the Canaanites that we read of in the Old Testament. They were so depraved and so wicked, so rotten, that God had them eliminated from that land. That's what his goal was. This king followed in their ways. You got the picture? Wait till you see the rest of it. 
Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord. We're not talking about altars to worship the Lord. He went into the temple and he built altars to pagan gods which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And you say, boy, this is bad news. Verse number 6 is hardly readable. He made his sons pass through the fire. That's sacrifice. Human sacrifice. He made his sons pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft. He used divination. He dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set up a carved image of Ashtra, which he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He started at 12 years old. Jump down to verse number 9. It says here, But they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now the Lord spoke through his prophets, his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, has done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who went before him, and he has made Judah sin with his idols. And he goes on to speak more of that. But jump down to 21 verse 16. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin in which he had made Judas sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Not a pretty picture, is it? They say, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's an interesting verse there toward the uh, latter part of the chapter. It speaks of those who lived by faith and, and actually, because of that, they were intensely persecuted. And there's a reference in there to an individual who was sawn asunder because of his faith. Sawn in two. And Scripture never identifies that individual. But according to Jewish tradition that has been carried on and never contradicted for that matter, they believe it was the prophet Isaiah himself sawn in half by Manasseh. You say, wow. How would you have liked to have been a priest in his day? If you were of the tribe of Levi, or specifically one of the sons of Aaron, your job was to minister in the temple. Your job was to offer up sacrifices for the people. 
Your job was to lead them in worship. Your job was to uh, remind them of the holidays and make sure that they they celebrated the the feast and the fast at the proper time and to lead them in these things. Your job was to direct the people's attention to the Lord, right? The job of the priest, that's the job of the Levite in that day. But what if you have a wicked king who walks into your workplace one day and sets up an idol there to be worshipped? What if he is the kind of king that if you do not listen to him, your life is forfeit? How would you like to have been a priest in that day? Now, if you want to know the rest of the story of Manasseh, you'll find some incredible things happened in his life. As pagan, as absolutely vile as he was, the Lord did use a, a uh, significant event to get his attention. He brought in the enemy one day, and they carried Manasseh off, and they put him in jail. They chained him up. Manasseh repented. And he vowed to the Lord, if he would be restored, he will correct the things that he had done. And sure enough, the Lord restored him to his throne. And boy, he tried hard. We've got to give him credit for it. He tried hard. But how do you reverse something you have done so deeply into the culture and into the practices and into the religious life of a people? How do you change such a thing? In this case, Manasseh was a man who did vile things. And there were people living in that day whose job was to lead the people before the Lord. And how do you be a good priest in such a hostile environment? That's the question that came to my thought as I was working through this passage. Let me ask you a couple of other questions while you're thinking along that. Maybe, maybe we should ask this. Were there any good priests in that day? Maybe there weren't any good priests in that day. Oh, it's quite possible that even the high priest was a pagan man. After all, he got it because his father was high priest. Doesn't necessarily mean that he was a spiritual man. He was supposed to be. What if there weren't any good priests? What if the authority of that land that turned evil as it did starts turning its evil intentions and practices directly towards you and affects your ministry, what would you do? What would you do if you lived in his day? Do you know that many somehow feel justified when living in a pagan place under pagan authority who's enforcing pagan practices upon them They justify their actions. They participate in the practices because it's legal. Because it's expected. Because it's the thing to do in our land. How many of them lived that way in Manasseh's day? This idol is set up so... As a priest who wants to be in tune with society, I would lead 
people into worship of this idol too, wouldn't I? I would offer the sacrifices because my king expects that of me. I would practice the things that he calls me to do. After all, the threat of death is a very significant influence, isn't it? Manasseh dies after 55 years of reign. You almost feel this whole collective sigh in the country until they realize his son Amnon is now king. And for two years he did nothing but follow his father's practices to do evil. His ministry did not reign as as an evil king, did not last very long, two years. And he died. And his son Josiah is now on the throne. Go over to that Second Chronicles passage, chapter 34. If you kept your bookmark, it's easy to find. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Let's start with verse number 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. I know a seven-year-old girl right there. Seven. He was eight years old when he became king. You almost sense an older folk in this day and age saying, oh, not this again. Eight years old. What's this man going to do? This boy, eight years old. If your job was dependent upon that king, how confident do you feel all of a sudden with an eight-year-old sitting on the throne? He might make laws about everyone playing with Legos or something. What do you do when you've got an eight-year-old king? He's eight years old. And your job depended upon how he reigns. It says he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2, you ready? He did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Starting to feel better about this? What they like to term as a revival broke out in the land. For the next handful of verses, you're going to see what Josiah did. It says, in the eighth year of his reign, so now he's 16, where he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah, Jerusalem, of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, the molten images. He tore down the altars of the Baal in his presence. The incense altars that were high above them, he chopped down. Also the ashram, he carved image, the carved images, the molten images. He broke in pieces and ground them to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burnt the bones of the priests on the altar and purged Judah and Jerusalem, and in the city of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the ashram, and carved images into powder, and chopped down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, he started this. He started this change, radically different. If you were living in that day, You had had 55 years of 
Manasseh's disgusting practices, two years of Amnon's wicked practices, and now this young man comes on and he's cutting it all down, cleaning out the land. And then he looks and he says, Still, Jerusalem is a wreck, and I'm going to have to do that too. And I could see his eyes focus right there on that temple and says, That's next. What do we do about this temple? Think of the number of years it's gone without any attention towards spiritual things. He's now 26 years old. 18 years after he started these things. 26 years old. That's a long time to clean up a mess, isn't it? 26 years. But that's where we're going to find him in verse number 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign... When he had purged the land in the house, he now sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joash, Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And he came to Hilkiah, the high priest. Mark that name, Hilkiah, the high priest. And delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnants of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, gave it to the hands of the workers, that they may oversee the work to repair, restore the house of God. He starts a work here. You could read it throughout this passage, all the way into verse number 12. It starts in verse 12 that the man did the work faithfully with foreman over them to supervise. They started to work. It started to work. It started to work. Something remarkable happened in the midst of that construction project. This is amazing. And really it's quite a surprise. Verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, remember that name? I told you mark him. He's a high priest, right? Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Let that, let that impact you for a second. Who is he? The high priest. What's his job? He's supposed to follow the law of the Lord and lead the people in worship. What did they just find? The law. Where has it been all these years? And what was this guy doing? He did not even have a copy of it. He did not know what he was called to do. He did not know the law of the Lord. Frightful, isn't it? Frightful picture. He found it. Said, wow, look what we just found. That's incredible. He's a high priest. He has never seen the law before. And now he finds the book. So Hilkiah responds and said to Shephan the scribe, I have found the book of the law of the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shephan. I think he should have read it first. He gave it to him. Shephan brought it to the king. And reported further to the king, saying, Everything 
that we were entrusted to do as your servants. Well, they're doing that. They've emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord. We've delivered it to the hands of the supervisors and workmen. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, gave me a book. Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. You ready for this? When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. This was a man who was intent on purging the land of everything unrighteous, right? He was a man who for 18 years has given himself to serving the Lord in purity for worship's sake. Removing idolatry. He's been active as you can possibly imagine perhaps the most spiritually led person in that land. And what's he do once he hears the word of the Lord? He tears his clothes. Why? Because he realized how far away they were from God. It impressed him so much that he came to this question in verse 21. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers had not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that was written in this book. So he tells Hilkiah, go and pray to the Lord. Find out how angry he is with us and what we must do to make things right. You know what's impressive to me? He tells Hilkiah to do that. Hilkiah is a high priest, right? What's his job? Pray to the Lord. What's his job? Tell the people what to do, right? Hilkiah can't do it. Verse number 22. Hilkiah and those who the king had told went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tophet. Go on and on with all these names. They couldn't do their job. They turned to a prophetess to find an answer. Does that strike you as exceedingly sad? I don't know if sad's the right word here. The one person who should lead you to the Lord can't do it. So he has to go find somebody else who could. What do you see about all this? We see a land corrupted by an evil king in its last 57 years, participating in idolatry, scared to death of that threat. If you don't do it our way, we'll kill you ignorant of the law, and unable to speak to the Lord on behalf of the king. Josiah, I like this man. Josiah the king takes measures into his own hands. Once he realizes the, the uh, impossibility of these others standing up, he says in verse number 31, it says of him, that the king stood in his place, and he made a covenant before the Lord, to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. This man started with himself, King Josiah did. He said, I don't see it in this office, I don't see it in that office, I don't see it in this group, I don't see it in that group, but it will be in me. I will stand for the Lord. I will follow his way. And he made a commitment before the people. 
He started with himself. It's easy, I guess, as a king just to tell everyone else to do it. But Josiah said, I will do it. You like this man? I love the courage. I love the, the, the dedication here. And then he goes on in verse 32. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenants of God, God of their fathers. And Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel. Made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. Something significant I just read to you. Throughout his lifetime, they did nothing but serve God. Guess what happened when he died? They immediately turned back from following the Lord. Is that a sad testimony? What do you have right here? Josiah taking action. He reads. You can see the rest of this passage here. He reads this law to the people. He reads it to them. He sets it up. So that they would obey this law with him. He reinstituted the Passover, verse 30, or verse 1 of chapter 35. He has a Passover ceremony that they hadn't seen, as scripture says, since the day of Samuel. Think in time. Since Samuel, you've had Saul, King Saul, not a very good king. King David, they should have known how to do Passovers back then. You had King Solomon with some of the most dramatic and ornate and, and incredible worship services ever. You've had Hezekiah and other good kings that came along. And yet the testimony of Scripture is Josiah had a Passover that no one had ever seen before. That's his dedication to the things of the Lord. He did this. Now, chapter 35, verse 2. You see where we've come to? He, Josiah, set the priests in their offices and encouraged them. He put them into a state of courage in service of the house of the Lord. You know, it doesn't tell us what happened to the former priests. Did he purge them too? After all, they had followed the ways of Manasseh. They had sacrificed on those pagan altars. They had done all those things. It doesn't say what came of them. Maybe they have been restored to their job. Maybe they've been turned from practicing idolatry, and now they're going to practice what is right. You know, if that was your job, would you follow just the whim of a leader? If this leader says everything in this place is going to be blue, you practice blue until the next guy comes up and said everything in this place is green. And guess what color you wear in the next morning? Green. Is that the kind of priest we're looking at here? That Josiah had to put into a state of courage to do what was right? Maybe. Maybe he got rid of those, and now this is a new generation, their children who had been taught all these practices from since they were, what we used to say, knee-high to a grasshopper. 
They had seen this and seen this and seen this and thought that, well, if dad did it and granddad did it, that's the way it's supposed to be. And he put them into a state of courage to do what's right in the house of the Lord. That's possible. But how many of them might just be serving because the king said so? Could Josiah put them to death? Oh, he's king. He's already dug up other people's bones and burnt them. That sounds pretty intense. How many of them are are serving just to save their skin? Their heart's not in it. But it's a new generation. They've cleaned the house. They're starting to obey the law. They're starting to support the king. You know what you're seeing a picture of here? You're seeing a picture of a group of people who are letting outside influences change their ministry. You see it? Bad king, bad ministries. Good king, good ministries. It's outside influences, outside influences, outside influences. Now, sometimes we need that. On some occasions, we might have a godly priest who can change the life of a king. Daniel. And the work that he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Darius. Is it possible that a a good godly man can change the life of a man in authority? Yes, we have examples of that. Are there examples where the, the culture and the people leading the culture influences those who are in ministry? Yes. That's what you're looking at here. Sometimes they lead people to do what's right. But over the trend of history, guess which way it usually goes? Quite the opposite, right? Quite the opposite. Here the priests needed courage to do their job. And they were dependent upon an outside source to make that happen. They needed a king to make them do that. And I can't help but ask this question as I think through this scenario here. How likely is it that we are going to be encouraged from outside sources to do our ministry? Are we waiting for the political leaders of our land to tell us how to do our job? Are we shifting our ministries because of what other people consider right or wrong? Are we going to follow the influence uh, of society in order to know how we're supposed to minister? The question is conformity and conforming to a culture. People do it so easily. Ministers do it so easily. They justify their ministry because, after all, it's the legal thing in our land. Now I told you it's going to sound frightfully similar to what you're looking at today. Frightfully similar, huh? Corruption? Participation in ungodliness, scared of the threats, ignorant of the law, unable to speak to the Lord on behalf of the people. That's a frightful set of ingredients. I hope it's not true in our place. I hope it's not true in our ministries. 
because I hope that we're not waiting for somebody else to come in and put us into the state of courage. It's not likely we're going to find it on the outside source. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I can start with this. I thank God that in the course of history, we have had spiritual leaders in our land. Godly influences upon our people that have established for us things that we have enjoyed for so many years. I hope the Lord opens that door again. I hope so. But I also realize that things that go on in our culture today only shows, honestly, the weakness. The weakness that we have if we're afraid to lead spiritually in a corrupt culture. There's too many examples of that. But I recall what I read to you several weeks ago, and I'll read it to you again, because this is the advice we're getting from out there. On the Fox News Internet site, Bill O'Reilly was interviewing Dennis Miller, the comedian. You could find it. It was May 13th, not long ago. They were commenting on the decline of those who claim to be Christians in our land. And these are the exact words that came from Dennis Miller's mouth. If I were a Christian, I would lay low. If I were a Christian, I would zip it. More than anything, they want us to zip it. (laughs) Because how many impressionable Believers are going to take these words to heart and keep quiet about their faith. How many will see the distressing times that we live in and believe that it's best for us to be quiet now? How many? The day is drawing near, folks. I believe, as Scripture says, times are waxing worse. It may just be our culture, it may just be our country. But I think if you look across the lands, you look into other countries and such, you'll see that the scripture is very true. That the times are evil. So what are we called to do in evil times? March to their drumbeat? Worship their idols? Practice their religion? We have history that shows us that that is not the answer. And we have history that shows us of godly men who stand up in perilous times and says, this is right. And I will do it if no one else will. Encouragement. What does that mean? Put into a state of courage. Josiah had to encourage these people to do their job. I hope that's not true of us. That we need somebody to encourage us just to do our job in ministry. What are you called to do? What are you called to do in ministry in this church? What part do you have? And you say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not in a position. Oh, yes, you are in something. All of us are called to ministry in Christ. What are we called to do? We are called 
to edify our brothers and sisters in the Lord, aren't we? If you want it simple, that's it. I'm here to build you up. You're here to build me up. We're to build one another up so that we reflect Jesus Christ. Find it in Ephesians chapter 4. That's our call. And that's the part you have, and that's the part I have. How are we doing? Have we gotten quiet because of our culture? Because of our society? Because of their threats? Have we gotten quiet? We're waited through. How many years do you want? 55? 57? Before a Josiah comes along? Or shall we do what the Lord has called us to do? We're here to minister to one another. We're here to stay true to God's word. We're here to proclaim the truth. Because our land desperately needs it, folks. Don't expect them to figure it out on their own. We have it. Let's live it. Let's share it. Let's stay true to our call. Heavenly Father, You encourage us today with Your Word. You challenge us because we live in a day when it's easy to justify our practices because of what the world might say. It's easy for us to hesitate because of threats. It's easy for us to zip it and lay low as the world would have us to because it's, it's uneasy times. But we are your children. And we've been called to a task of ministry. And we exist for a purpose of bringing glory to our God and lifting our brothers and sisters in Christ to be like Him. We are called to this task. And we will do that. We commit ourselves in our hearts and in our positions and our lives and in our stands to do our ministry, Lord. Not waiting for the world to give us a green light to do so but because God's word and his authority tells us to, we will be true. Challenge our hearts with this passage, Lord. May we not be repeaters of history and follow after a Manasseh or an Ammon, but may we follow after Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.